Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm Chris. I'm not Robert. I'm, I work for InterVarsity on staff at Amherst College. Amherst College people? Some. Some. Appreciate you guys. Um, so yeah, I graduated in May from Amherst, and I'm here doing ministry in the Valley. And um, so if you've been with us through the semester, you know that we've been going through the Gospel of John, um, and Robert's been calling the sermon series the, the Big Reveal, because the point is um, that John wrote his Gospel so that you would see, he says, so that you would see that Jesus is the Christ, and that you would come to believe in him, and in believing that you would have life. So that's the point of the Gospel of John. Um, and I'm excited about this text because I think that this, this story might reveal Jesus in a way that none of the texts that we've read have yet. I think that there's something about this text that, that describes Jesus in a way that we haven't, we haven't discovered, and it's extremely powerful. So I say that to say it's an honor to get to preach from John 11 to you and to preach about the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so yeah, I'm being blessed by this, and I hope that you are too. Um, a uh, Hebrew scholar of the New Testament, Alfred Edersheim, says that the raising of Lazarus marks the highest point in the ministry of our Lord. It is the climax in a history where all is miraculous. What he's saying is that this is the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry. Um, and obviously that's a little bit confusing because we know that Jesus goes on to die on the cross and to resurrect. That's a grand miracle. I don't think he's in any way diminishing that. Um, but he says that in this particular point, we see Jesus' divinity and humanity come to a head in a way that's unique. We see Jesus raising a man from the dead, and simultaneously we see our Savior weeping. Um, and then we know that this is, this is a glorious event, and right afterwards, the Pharisees and the chief priests are determined, once and for all, to set Jesus, or to, to put Jesus to death. And so this is, this is in some ways, yeah, the, the climax, and after this, it is downhill. Obviously, there's glorious things to come, but it's the turning point in his ministry. Um, yeah, and also in this passage, Jesus calls himself the resurrection and the life. Huge claims to say, I am the life. Wild. So my point is that we get a clear picture here of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Um, and so if you were looking for a title for this sermon, and I think I'm in charge of providing that for you, um, it would be something like, Three Steps to New Life According to John, or Jesus. I don't know. You can pick. Um, but the point is that this story, I think, in very key ways, mirrors the story of every Christian. Um, it's an illustration of what it means to find new life in Christ, to have an encounter with God that's transformative and brings new life. And so if you're a Christian, you claim that, that that's happened to you. <laughs> that has happened to you, sorry. That has happened to you. Um, and so this story is a, a mirror or an illustration of what it looks like to come to Jesus and to find new life in him. So if you're not a Christian and you're here today and you're investigating, but you haven't had an experience of new life in Jesus this is a really instructive story for you to see what it is that Christians have had happen to them. This is what makes Christians different. Um, this is what would make you a Christian. This is what it means to find life in Christ. So, if you're not a Christian, I think there's a, a, the cha my, my challenge to you, my encouragement to you, is to pay close attention to what happens in this story, because this is, what, this is what your Christian friends are saying has happened to them. And if you are a Christian, the, uh, the challenge or the encouragement is that you would try to see yourself in this story. In what ways is this a story not just about Lazarus, but about you? Um, and I, I know that you'll find yourself in the text. So before I begin, um, let me remind us what the prophet Isaiah says of the scripture. 
that. He says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So as we approach this text, let's do it with reverence, recognizing that this is God's word and this actually stands forever. The grass will wither and actually the earth will die, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Um, and so we'd be wise to pay attention. We can base our life on this. We can trust this to be true. Um, and let me pray for us again before we jump in. God, we recognize, I recognize that I need you. And Lord, Father, I just ask that you would send your spirit in Jesus' name to glorify your son. Uh, Father, we want to see Jesus accurately so that we can praise him adequately. And we need your help for that. So we ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So I realize it's a lot of verses, 44 verses. Thank you, Jay, for reading all that. Well done. That's a bear of a um, selection. Um, so let me summarize it for you quickly, or try. So Jesus is not in Bethany. He's hanging out with his, with his buds. And Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are in Bethany. These are people that Jesus loves. Scripture tells us that in verse 5. And um, Lazarus gets really sick. So Mary and Martha, his sisters, send a messenger to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, Lazarus, the guy you love, is dying, or he's very ill. And Jesus gives a confusing reply. He's like, oh, the sickness doesn't lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that his son might be glorified. And the messenger must have just been like, okay. And they turned around and went back to Bethany with not much to say to the sisters. Like, I don't know if he's coming. I don't know if he, if he healed him. I'm not sure. Um, but then Jesus waits two days. See in verse 5, it says, um, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. He delays because he loves them. Let's dig into that a little bit. Um, that's weird. And then he does make his way. When he gets there, Lazarus has already been dead four days. And we see both women, Mary and Martha, coming up to Jesus and saying, Lord, if you'd just been here, you could have prevented this. And Jesus has a conversation with both of them. Then Jesus prays a weird prayer to God that's like kind of, they're like listening to him talk to God, and he's like talking to them and talking to God, and it's confusing. And then Jesus says, roll away the stone, and then calls out to Lazarus, says, the dead person, says, come awake, and Lazarus comes out of his tomb. That's the story. Before I jump into the framework, the three steps to new life, I want to make just a couple theological points that we can draw from this, based, or theological points about suffering. Um, because like I said, I think this is a, a, a scripture where we see Jesus' divinity and humanity collide in really important ways. Um, and so what I'm saying is, we see clearly that Jesus loves these people. Jesus loves Lazarus, and yet lets Lazarus die. He waits two days, and in that time, Lazarus dies. Um, so that's first. Jesus loves them, and yet Lazarus still dies. Secondly, Jesus is... is going to fix the situation. Jesus actually does raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet, Jesus cries. And that word for cries in Greek is actually like heaving sobs. He's not just like sympathizing with them. He's not just upset because it's like he caught it, like a disease. Everyone's sad, so he cried, which happens. But the, Jesus is like deeply emotionally moved by that. And you get the visceral emotional language from the gospel here. And so from those, from those things, we can conclude that when, when suffering happens, it's not that God doesn't love us. Um, it's also not that God isn't powerful. Jesus does fix the problem. And actually, he could have solved the problem without even traveling. We know from other passages in Scripture that Jesus can heal people from afar. And so there's a way in which 
He allows Lazarus to die so that they can experience Jesus' glory in a new way. That's, that's in, um, in verse 4. This, is, this illness is not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus allows evil to happen so that we can see a fuller picture of God's saving mercy and power and be captivated by his glory. Um, so notice that Mary and Martha come up to him and they're like, if you've just been here, he wouldn't have died. They think that his power is limited to preventing death. But it's because Lazarus dies that we get to see that Jesus doesn't just prevent death. He reverses it. And so in some ways, the suffering of the world allows us to see God's more gl- glory multiplied in ways that we wouldn't if bad things didn't happen. It's mysterious, but it's true. Um, yes. But, so what I'm saying is when suffering's happening, we can say for sure it's not because God's not in control. It's not because he's not powerful. It's not because he doesn't love us. And he's going to make it right. See how Jesus does make it all right. There's a celebration at the end of the story. But Jesus, though he knows the conclusion, still weeps with the hurting. And I think there's a, um, a way that the church needs to repent for presenting doctrine to people who are weeping. We can't just say, don't cry, because it's going to be all better. That's not what Jesus does here. He makes it all right, and he will make all suffering right in the end. And yet, he still condescends to weep in the dirt with his friends. That's our God. That's better than if God were just to say, I'm going to make it okay. Cry now, but it will be okay later. God is actually like weeping with the oppressed and with those who are hurting, though he also presents hope and is sure that he will make it better. That's sort of a broad theology of suffering from the scripture. Now, I'm going to get into three steps to new life, according to John. Um, this is what it means to experience Jesus and, and that leads into new life. Step one, let Jesus in. So like I said, Lazarus is dead. Jesus walks up, and he's like, roll away the stone. Right? He's like, I want, weird request. Like, he's been dead for four days. You don't want to go in there, Jesus. But Jesus says, roll away the stone. And there's a way in which, so let, in order to experience new life, Jesus wants to be in there. Jesus wants to have us roll away the stone so we can go into the dark places. And I want to point out the fact that this is not our natural tendency. We don't want people to come into the dead parts. We don't want people to come into the dark places, into the tombs of our heart, right? It's not our natural tendency when, when someone says, like, can I know you better? Can I know the deep stuff? When, even when God is like, let me into the darkness, that's not what we really want. And I think there's actually, there's two reasons why, or two, two ways that that we keep God at arms, not just God, but everyone, at arm's reach when they ask to be into the, the depths of the darkness of the tombs of our heart. The first is we say, Jesus, it's not that bad. That's not obvious in the scripture, but it is there. If you see, so they, remember they sent help from Jesus. They said, like, Jesus, your friend's sick. Are you going to come? And Jesus doesn't. He waits two days. But when he arrives, Lazarus has been dead four days, which means that even if Jesus had come immediately, Lazarus would already have been dead. It would have been too late. There's a sense in which we know that while Lazarus was suffering and sick, they waited too long to ask for help. They were trying to manage the disease without letting the healer come. This is something that we do often. We tell Jesus, we don't need your help. We can manage our lives. Our lives are okay. It's not that bad. You don't need to come and see this part. Uh, we, We can do this. We can handle our problem. We can handle our sin. We try to keep Jesus out by saying we'll be okay without him. 
That's all right, Jesus, I can do it by myself. But if you, are, if you and I are honest, we know that we're really actually struggling and fighting to present a pretty face to the world. That each of us is actually deeply harboring things that are not okay. But trying to present the world, it's, it's not that bad. And that's a way that we keep others at arm's reach by just giving us, giving like a little pretty face so that the world can think, oh, they're not that bad. But there's, there's some problematic implications of this. Lazarus dies, which means that as they were trying to manage the problem, as they were trying to like deal with the death, they were gravely underestimating the problem. So when we just try to morally manage our sin or present a pretty face to the world, we're actually gravely misunderstanding the sickness that's dwelling within us. We're gravely misunderstanding our sickness, and we're also living in denial. The Bible is very clear that without God, we're dead. You and I aren't just suffering from moral ineptitude. We're actually dead. In Ephesians 2, it says you were dead in your, trans, your, tres, your trespasses, your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Ephesians 3 describes the state of being without God as being without hope. Because dead people can't fix their situation. So when we say to Jesus, it's not that bad, the Bible's very clear, it's that bad. It's worse than you think. And you can't handle it by yourself, because dead people, like I said, can't fix their situation. The Bible would, would think of like moral management or even like religious games as like putting perfume or makeup on a corpse. It doesn't help. It doesn't solve the problem. It might make it look better, but it's not treating the root of the problem. The Bible says that your sin is actually killing you, and you need help. So that's one reason why we keep Jesus out. We would say it's not that bad. The second is we say, Jesus, it's too bad. And this is we see Martha saying this, right? When Jesus says, roll away the stone, take away the stone, in verse 39, Martha, the sister of the dead man, who notice he's lost his name, he's just a dead man at this point, she said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been there for four days. Uh, and unfortunately, in preparing the sermon, I googled what would happen to a body after four days of decay in the Palestinian heat. It's not pretty. She's right. There would be an odor. It would be stinky. And she's right to say it's disgusting. Jesus, you don't want to go in there. And so I think in some ways we can easily relate to that impulse. Jesus, don't go into that part. It's too bad in there. It's, you're not going to like what you see. She's really right. I, so I, like I said, I googled what happens to her body. I'm not going to describe it explicitly because it's disgusting. But just let me vaguely say things like, well, it's stinky. Um, there's a lot of rotting going on. Um, there's fluids that I didn't know about. Um, I would say seeping is a word that sort of captures the spirit of what's going on. Um, and actually, so maybe this is the most illustrative way to say it. After three to four days, depending on the temperature, the face of a dead person is completely unrecognizable. Totally destroyed. You can't even tell two dead bodies apart after three days. Beyond recognition. And even as I describe it, I recognize that I'm, I'm making a parallel to the state of humanity without God, and we're so self-deluded that we don't believe this is us. 
The Bible says we're dead, but when we describe death, I realize that you might not be even hearing that as, as you. The Bible is very clear that without God, without the healing of the healer, all we will do is rot. I also recognize that for some of us, we've been dead and rotting for so long that we look at the indistinguishable face that's not what it's supposed to look like, and we say, that's me. And actually, in some ways, the world tells us to be proud of that and say, that's who you are. There's a way in which in a fallen culture, and after experiencing so much death, we choose to identify ourselves as something that we were never meant to be. We choose to look at a rotting corpse and say, yeah, that's who I am. But Jesus is saying it's, it wasn't meant to be that way. So whether you recognize that you, apart from Christ, are dead or not, I think all of us can relate to the idea that there's something in your heart that if it were publicly known, you'd be ruined. Some of us, subconsciously or consciously, all of us, subconsciously or consciously, have the notion that there's this, some, some secret thing, some hidden thing that if, if, if that person knew, if those people knew, I'd be ruined. I'd be done. I couldn't live there anymore. I heard a story recently about Mark Twain, a trickster, who um, wrote a simultaneous telegram to 12 of his best friends, and it, it just said, flee, all is discovered. <laughs> and shortly thereafter, all 12 of them left the country, packed up their stuff, and leave, left. He later got in contact with them, and it was, like, it was a joke, whatever. But the point is that <laughs> all of us are hiding something that if it were discovered, we have to flee. We'd have to run away. It would be unacceptable in our society to admit that thing. Jesus is asking, roll away the stone into that place. I want to go into that part of the death, where it stinks, where it reeks of death. And the truth that the Bible says is that unless we let Jesus in, we're never going to experience new life. Because all dead things do is rot. But he's the Lord of life. Scripture says that, he, he says, I am the life. So without him, we will only fester and rot. But if we let Jesus in, we can experience healing no matter how far gone we are. In, in uh, 1 John 1, 5 through 10, it's, John says, again, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, like hiding our sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So why do we let Jesus in? Because he has something to say about our death. Jesus offers forgiveness for sin and to sinners so that you and I can experience new life no matter how dead we've been. Listen in verse 43, what Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. Speaking to a corpse, come out of the tomb, giving a commandment to a dead thing. In verse 44, the man who had died, again, no name, unrecognizable, the man who had died came out. So step one, let Jesus in, and step two, follow Jesus out. 
Because when the voice of God speaks into the darkness, you have to follow Jesus out of the tomb. Perhaps today, even, Jesus is calling you out of your tomb. I want to focus, actually, on what's happening here. Jesus, like I said, is calling to a dead person and saying, come awake. And the dead man responds, right? But it's ridiculous. Let's not pass that up. Let's not act as though, like, oh, it's a Jesus story. We're, we're familiar with this. This is raising a dead person who's been dead for four days and who's been rotting internally and externally, coming to life. Um, and actually, I think it's a, a, a helpful thought experiment to think, what would it be like if we were to interview Lazarus at this moment? If we were like, hey, Lazarus, so you were in the tomb, and now you're out. Like, how, what happened? What would he say? I think it would be something like, well, I was dead, and then I, there was, I started to not be dead, and then there was a light, and um, I heard I was told to come out, and so I came out. I don't think that he could explain it, um, and maybe, yeah, but I think it'd be hilarious. Maybe that's what I'm saying, um, but the point is, do, do you understand what this means? Do you believe that this is true, that Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, can talk to dead people when they come alive? Do you believe that? I want to pause also. This is this text is written by John. This is Jesus' best friend, closest confidant, best, yeah, best earthly friend. No doubt, John was an eyewitness to this, which means that he smelled the stench as the stone was rolled away. He hung out with Lazarus as they celebrated his new life afterward. Not only that, John went to his death defending this truth. And he says he wrote this down so that you would know who Jesus is. John, we know, ended his life in exile. He was persecuted for preaching Jesus as Lord, but never recanted. More than that, Cindy already told us that as a result of this, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, there's crowds of worshipers saying, God saves, Hosanna. They recognize that Jesus is authoritative. Because they've heard the story that Lazarus was dead and was made alive by the word of Jesus. And so you have to realistically ask yourself, do you believe that this story is true? And if you want to say no, you have to realistically really deal with the fact that John was there, John said it was true, and John and his friends died defending this truth. And actually, that history was changed because of the movement of people who believed in Jesus. And so I think we can get sort of like sanitized from this as people who are living 2,000 years later. But if we want to discount this story, we have to discount the credible historical witness of the eyewitnesses who were there. So let me, let me tell you, personally, I believe this. I believe that Jesus spoke into a tomb and that the dead man came out. I believe it because of the eyewitness. I believe it because of the eyewitness historical testimony. But I also believe it, well, I also believe it because it happens in the Bible. This is something that, that Jesus does. This is something that God is in the business of doing, speaking into the darkness so that people come to life. The most prominent example is of the Apostle Paul, who was Saul, right? And he was a persecutor of the church. He was a, a zealous Jew who, in an effort, I think, out of like racism, ethnocentrism, was persecuting Christians for converting 
from Judaism to Christianity and saying, like, you're defiling it. You're defiling our Judaism and, and killing Christians. And then on the way to Damascus, Jesus appeared to Paul and said, Paul, I'm Jesus. You're the one, you're persecuting me. I'm the risen Lord. And it was a glorious, bright light, knocked Paul off his horse. Amazing. So in some ways, Jesus revealed himself to Paul. But Paul, later writing about it in Galatians 1.16, you can look it up in your ESV, it says, the glory of Jesus was revealed to me, but it has a footnote on the word to. The real word is in. Paul didn't just see Jesus. Paul saw Jesus in his heart. Jesus was revealed to Paul in his very being. Is that, has that happened to you? That's, that happens consistently in the New Testament. That's what it means when people are converted, is that Jesus, the light of Christ, shone in their hearts and brought people to life. That's what conversion means in Christianity. I, I don't just believe it because of historical witness. I don't just believe it because it happened to Paul. We're seeing it in this valley this year. Last, in, this fall, my wife works at UMass and was praying with a student there who has no Christian background, doesn't know the jargon, doesn't know Christianese, and doesn't know how, to, like, how Christians always describe encounters with God. They've been meeting over a couple months, and finally, this woman decides that she wants to pray to commit her life to Jesus. Praise God. And as she's praying, she stops and looks up at my wife, beaming, huge smile. So Katie's like, what's going on? And again, she doesn't have any context for how to describe this. The best way she knows how to describe what happened in her heart, she says, it feels like there's a light in the darkness. God, in his glory, shone in her heart and transformed her. It was just a, it was a metaphor. It was a simile for what's going on. It feels like there's light in the darkness. That was the best way she knew how to describe it. And she's not a one-off story either. There's, last fall also, a student from Amherst, a, a, a man, um, was at one of our Black Campus Ministry worship nights. They're amazing, by the way. If, you, if you're looking for particularly for people who have grown up in the white American church, come to our BCM worship nights. They're awesome. They'll be challenging and fruitful for you. That's what this kid did. He'd grown up in the white Christian tradition, went to a black campus ministry worship night, and committed his life to Jesus. And when I interviewed him afterwards, like I would have wanted to do with Lazarus, this guy said, I was like, what happened? And he said, I don't know. It was just, it was so powerful. I knew that I would never be the same. And he gave his life to Jesus on the spot because God radically awoken him to new life. One more story. Sorry. Uh, I like these. Um, one of our student leaders has been discipling a woman. This is only a couple weeks ago. She's been discipling a woman over a couple months, and they've been going through doctrine, and she's been learning what it, like, who God is, who Jesus is, about the Trinity, um, learning theology. And finally, they get to one of their lessons, and it says, do you want to commit your life to Jesus for the first time? Do you want to recommit your life to Jesus? And this woman enthusiastically points to the first one and says, that's me. Because something happened between the learning about theology and through the discussions, God revealed himself to this woman. And so it wasn't just head knowledge anymore. She said, I want that. I want to serve that God with my life. I want to give my life to Jesus. See, there's a work of Christ in awakening dead people to life. And we're seeing it all over the place. So that's why I believe this story. And actually, there's a sense in which if you're a Christian and that's not your story, you got to think seriously about what it means when you say that Jesus saves you or Jesus has saved you because that's, what, that's how the scripture defines salvation is moving from death to life because Christianity is not 
a set of rules that make bad people good. It's about the Lord of life calling dead people to live. So if that's not your story, you need to think seriously about what, what you mean when you say that Jesus has saved you. Jesus is, even today, calling into graves and saying, come out, come awake. So I wonder if the Lord is speaking to you. Even right now, Jesus could shine the light and the glory of Christ into your heart to bring life. Has that happened to you? If it has happened to you, you need to leave your grave and walk in the light. This is what the Bible calls repentance, leaving the death and coming out to follow Jesus, leaving the darkness and the stench and coming out to walk in new life and freedom with Jesus. So step one to new life, let Jesus in. Step two, follow Jesus out. And step three, receive our help. Look in verse 44 again. It says, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped in a cloth, and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So Lazarus comes out of the tomb, and the scripture says in verse 44 that he was bound. And the, the sense of that word in Greek is that he was like tied up. So, so instead of this like glorious prancing out of the grave thing, Lazarus probably did something like one of these. And he's got, he's got like a, a wrapped face. He can't see, definitely can't eat, can't move. Um, so actually, we can, we can note that it's possible to experience a revival in your heart and still be bound. For some of you, this is your situation. This has been my situation at times, too. You've experienced new life in Christ. Christ has spoken into your heart and brought you to life, but still the old ways and the death still tie you up. Notice that, um, that if you're a Christian, this is not what Christian life is meant to look like. In fact, throughout the Bible, specifically you can look at Ezekiel 37, Ephesians 6, Hebrews 12, they describe Christians as like warriors, soldiers. Ephesians 6 is like fighting. Um, Hebrews 12 is let's run. And all these things require freedom of your limbs. You can't fight like this. And so the point is that Jesus didn't call you to life just so you could be a mummy. You're meant, you're meant to take off the grave clothes. Um, and so the, I think the, the best illustration, you guys seen Night at the Museum? That's still relevant? Sure. Yeah? Okay. Um, you know, so there's, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a museum. There's this magical tablet, which they never really explain, I don't think. But there's this magical tablet that's in the museum, and it makes it so that everything in the museum comes to life at night. So there's like Teddy Roosevelt, elephants, a lot of other stuff. You should watch the movie. Um, but there's one guy who I always feel sorry for, um, who is a mummy, and he comes to life, but he's still mummified, and then not only that, he's still in his coffin. He, all he does for the first couple nights is just shake and scream. I always feel like kind of claustrophobic about that. That is not what Christianity is meant to be. You who have come to life need to follow Jesus out and receive our help. When I say receive our help, I mean that Jesus commands the community to take off the grave clothes for Lazarus. He's tied up. He can't do it himself. He needs help. This is the point of Christian community, is that we could take, we could help each other unwrap the sin that's been entangling us. Listen to verse, uh, Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2 says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin 
which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Like I said, yeah, this is the point of Christian community. This is why we're here, is to help you leave behind the grave and the stench of death. Um, Rod Dreher, who wrote um, the Benedict Option, Benedictine Option, sweet book about Christian discipline and kind of mon- like new monasticism, describes being in Christian community as being involved in, quote, the lifetime work of deepening repentance, continually removing the old ways, pulling off the stench of death. So this is saying in community, hey, I was dead earlier. Can you, can you untie me? Can you help me? Because I, I can't reach. Um, it's also saying, sorry that I smell like death. I was dead for four days or for 12 years or for 22 years, whatever it is. I was asking our friends to point out the blind spots where we're still snagged by sticky grave clothing and saying, if you see that, pull that off of me. I don't want that on me. So I think I would actually challenge you. One of the, the best and most horrible, terrific gifts that I've ever had is a friend who had free reign to point out all of my blind spots. So I'm a white man from the South and a Christian. And I'm, yeah, so there's a lot of privilege that comes with a lot of that. And I had a black female friend who experiences America very differently from me. And she can see my blind spots in ways that I can't. And so she's, she, to this day, and it's amazing and horrible, has free reign to point out the places where I'm speaking out of my blindness and hurting others. So she'll say like, oh, there's a little bit of death on your shoe. But the words you just said, that was death. That smelled like death to me. Um, I would encourage you to find a friend and give them a hunting license to find your sin and target it. Um, it's been, yeah, like I said, it's horrible, but it's, it's what God calls it. That's what it looks like to unwrap each other, to unbind each other, to help us run freely. So one way you can examine yourself and how you're doing about this is how, how comfortable are you talking about your sin? How comfortable, are you, how comfortable are you when someone says, oh, you got a little death on your shoe? Or your arm still seems a little, or more specifically, you still seem like you're kind of caught up in anger about the situation. Or have you forgiven that person? Because it doesn't seem like you've forgiven that person. How, how comfortable are you hearing that? It's horrible. Uh, but actually, there should be a radical humility among those of us who know we were dead and we've come to life. Um, and I think it's, I want to point out that oftentimes Christians will come out of the grave and then pretend like we were never dead. People are like, wait, like, how are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? And like, well, you, you were just dead. What are you talking about? Like, well, no, I was never dead. We act as though the life that we have is just like on our own merit or we never had a problem. Um, and actually, that denigrates the work that Jesus has done in bringing you back to life. So when you, when you act as though you have it all put together or deny the stench of death that still clings to you, you are minimizing the work that Jesus did in bringing you out of the grave. Now, we need to recognize that the reason we do that is because we want some of the glory for ourselves. That salvation is from the Lord. Yeah, the reality is we don't have to hide our sin anymore. And actually, it's a glorious and Christ-exalting thing to say, I was dead, and I've been made alive in Christ. That's why I smell bad. That's why I have this odor of death is because I was dead. 
And I don't have it figured out, and I can't run that properly, but Christ has revived me. Christ has given me a new life. There's a, um, there's a band that I love because of my wife, so I'll give her credit before I commend them to you, because I'll cite my source. Uh, she introduced me to them. Um, but the Grey Havens, they're amazing. Grey Havens fans? Some, not, some like subtle nods? Check them out. Um, there's a song that, that's called Shadows of the Dawn. In particular, I would point you to that song. And um, in it they say, um, the kingdom of the morning star, talking about Jesus, can pierce a stone and coldy heart, cold, a cold and stony heart. Let me start over. The kingdom of the morning star can pierce a cold and stony heart. Its grace went through me like a sword and came out like this song. Beautiful. That's a picture of grace and confession. When Jesus, in his grace, shines in the depths of your heart and renews you and brings life, you necessarily sing. You have to tell about it. I wonder, as a Christian, is that your song? Is that the song that you're singing? Or are you trying to act as though you were never dead? In closing, I've said that uh, the story of Lazarus mirrors the story of every Christian in key ways, and that's true. And that those key ways are that we need to let Jesus in, follow Jesus out, and receive the help of community so that we can run the race set before us. There's also one, one really significant way that it differs from the story of Christians, and that is that this is a revival story. This is a resuscitation story story. Lazarus was dead, it came back to life, and we don't know the end of the story, but we do know that Lazarus died maybe a decade later, maybe two. Um, and so, there, like I said, there are key points that are true for all of us. The Bible tells us very clearly that all people like Lazarus are in a state of death, and we need help from an external and powerful force to, to resurrect us. We don't just need cosmetic help. We don't just need to put makeup on the problem or perfume on the problem. We need new life. We need a radical transformation. You don't need a bit of moral management or religion to sprinkle on your corpse. You need Jesus to speak into the depths of your sin and say, come awake. So in that way, it's a great picture. But when Jesus calls people to life, we don't die again. When Jesus speaks into your soul, you're called to radical new life that's eternal. Jesus says himself, he who believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. That yes, your body will die, but if you're in Christ, your soul will live on forever with him. That's the truth that the Bible says very plainly throughout its scriptures. Jesus is not calling people to be revived, to die again, but to resurrected life that lasts forever. This is what Jesus offers to sinners. And in fact, that's actually far more glorious and magnificent than what he did to Lazarus. So the reason that we do communion is to remember that we were dead and we're made alive. And actually, more specifically, communion is meant to remind us that when we say to Jesus, no, it's, it's not that bad. It is that bad. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Jesus, the divine Son of God, on his knees, sweating blood, weeping, saying, God, the Father, if there's any other way, save them in some other way. 
I don't want to do this. But there's silent heaven. There is no other way. Your sin is that bad that the divine son had to die for you. Amazingly, he wanted to. He loves you that much. But when we say your sin is not that bad, our, our sin is not that bad, Jesus says, yes, it is. The price of your redemption was the very life of God. On the flip side, if we were to say our sin is too bad, Jesus, don't go in there. It's too bad. Communion reminds us that Jesus was willing to go to any depth, any length to save you. And actually, that when we say, we're, I'm too disfigured, my sin is too disgusting, my face isn't even recognizable. No, Jesus was the one who out of, came down from heaven and became horribly disfigured in your place. The Bible says that he was marred beyond recognition. So that your, your body that would have decayed doesn't have to. This is what, when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life, it means that he, 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 the life, he, the one who was the life, died, experienced death, and actually he took on a body that did decay in the grave for three days so that your soul would never have to decay. He who was life became death for us so that we can have life. This is what Christians mean when they say that Jesus dies for us means that he died in our place so that we can have life. The one who was life became death so that we could obey his command and come out of the grave and experience new life. So I wonder today, if you've, have you heard the voice of Jesus calling into your heart? The Bible says that apart from his quickening voice, all we can do is rot. Have you been made alive in Christ? Have you come out of your grave? Or are you trying to manage your death? Are you trying to just manage the stench and underestimating the problem? Or perhaps you're, you've in some way become satisfied with the grave when real life is offered to you in Christ. The Bible is actually very clear that it says today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, Come out of your grave. And so I want to encourage you if, you, if you are not a Christian, or even if you're a Christian, but you're not sure that this is your story, and today you hear the voice of God speaking into the darkness of your heart, you should respond in faith and place your life in his hands. We're going to have a time to do that in just a second. Um, but to the Christian, I want to ask, have you been honest with your sin before God and others? Have you let Jesus into the darkest place? Have you let your friends into the darkest place after being healed by Jesus? Will you let him in? Will you receive our help and be honest about the places where death is still clinging to you? To the Christian in the room, how are you running? Does your life look like a race or are you still hindered by sin? And what sin is it particularly that's, that's wrapping you up, that's binding you? So before we leave today, actually I'm gonna pray before we do communion. Um, so first of all, if you're in Christ and you've experienced the voice of Jesus calling into your heart and bringing you to new life, if you've followed Jesus out of the grave, then communion is for you. To remember where you once were and remember the work that Jesus did in taking your place 
dying for you so that you can have life. That's why we take communion. We're going to do that in a second. If you're not in Christ, we'd encourage you to stay in your seat and be praying. Uh, but this is, this is for people who have experienced new life in Christ. And so in a minute, I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to pray um, a prayer for, for those who have maybe heard Jesus' voice today in your heart. Um, and if that's you, I would encourage you to pray along with me in your heart. Um, yeah, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, so perhaps today is the day of your salvation. I'm going to pray to that end. And then I'm also going to pray for um, Christians in the room who are feeling bound by sin. Um, and if that's you, I would, agree to, I would ask you to agree with me and pray along in your heart um, that God would help you, empower you to be removing the grave clothes in community, acknowledging that you were dead, um, but, but asking for grace to live unhinderedly. So let me pray for us, and then we'll do communion. First, I'll pray for those who might be hearing God's voice for the first time today. Lord, I recognize that you call people out of graves. I recognize that apart from you, I am dead, and that I actually am in desperate need of your voice. I'm in desperate need of the life that you offer. And Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I want to live for you. So thank you for speaking into my heart. Thank you for calling me out of the grave. And please empower me to live for you by your spirit, for your glory. Amen. And for the, for the Christian. Um, Lord, we recognize that though you've enlivened us, though at one time we did come out of the grave, yet we still long for the grave. We still long for death. There are parts of our hearts that actually like to be hindered, we like the smell of death in some ways. And God, I pray that you would send your spirit into this place to be empowering us as a community to help each other take off the grave clothes, that you would cut the binds of sin that, that restrict us from running so that we could run for your glory. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So